the United States used to uh, impose war taxes and these war taxes not only paid for the war but gave individuals a connection with the war to understand that these wars were going on and that they you couldn't do them on the cheap that everyone sort of paid the cost for them even if you weren't sent to the front lines and so now we just borrow The, sort of the, how, how we envision kind of a democratic society is that there should be debate about going into war and, and expending American blood, blood and treasure uh, in the service of national security. And if those debates aren't taking place, then the worry is that you can either get into conflicts that might not be in the national interest or that might continue much longer than the national interest would advise. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and in this episode, Major Jake Morali sits down for a conversation with Dr. Sarah Kreps. She is a professor of government and adjunct professor of law at Cornell University, and she has conducted some important and really impactful research on a range of topics relevant to the conduct of war today and in the future. Her latest book is called Taxing Wars, The American Way of War Finance and the Decline of Democracy. In this episode, you'll hear her talk about how countries go to war and how they pay for those wars. But before we get to it, just a couple quick notes. First, hopefully you're subscribed to the MWI podcast, but if not, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, pretty much any place you get your podcasts. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Jake Moraldi and Sarah Krebs. Dr. Krebs, thank you so much for sitting down and taking the time to talk to us. Um, I want to lead off for folks that maybe are not familiar with your work about what your research uh, topics are and what you're interested in, kind of generally what your background is before we get too deep into it. Sure. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, so I have come at my academic research from the perspective of someone who actually served in the military as well. and uh, and. I, I served between 99 and 2003 on active duty and then another few years as a reservist. And so at that time, uh, when I came into the military, it was the so-called peace dividend. Uh, so it was the wars in the Balkans and these were sort of criticized as uh, uh, policies of social welfare, helping with humanitarian crises. Uh, and then 9-11 hit and, uh, and that of course was a, a, a huge event that triggered a new kind of uh, a real policy shift and then the Iraq war. And so these were fairly formative experiences in terms of thinking about how the country goes to war. Mm -hmm. And that has been very central to the research I do. And so I think a lot about how mostly the United States, but other democracies go to war and kind of the checks and balances and uh, the constraints that are put on leaders in terms of how they conduct conflict. And so I've done work on the uh, cost and sort of how the visibility of the cost of war affect those calculations. And so I've done a lot of work on the use of drones or UAVs and how that makes the costs in blood less apparent because Americans aren't coming home as as often in body bags and that that erodes these kinds of constraints. Um, and then the cost in treasure. I have a book coming out 
on how the United States pays for wars. And so it used to uh, impose war taxes. And these war taxes not only paid for the war, but gave individuals a connection with the war to understand that these wars were going on and that they you couldn't do them on the cheap, that everyone sort of paid the cost for them, even if you weren't sent to the front lines. And so now we just borrow. And so there are no war taxes. And so there are these different ways in which Americans don't come into contact with wars and that that uh, in a lot of ways means that the wars can kind of continue without an awareness that used to be present under periods of uh, conscription, certainly, but even when we were not using unmanned vehicles. Um, and certainly now that we don't have any idea what these wars cost in treasure, these are they cost trillions of dollars. But to the extent that people are unaware of that, which I find in my research is the case, uh, it it makes it easier to go to war without constraints. So a lot of stuff there about the visibility, as you call it, of, of war and sort of the public perception. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what, of all the things that you laid out, whether it's UAVs or whether it's the lack of a war tax or, or, or anything like that, sort of what your research has shown to be the most Influential, I guess, is the best way to describe it in limiting public consciousness of, of warfare. What are the things that, if they were in the public's face, would be the most alarming, mm -hmm. would be the most eye-catching? So it's a good question. And I, uh, I think there, I would take a step back and say that I think these are two sides of the same coin that emerged uh, from the same source. And so after World War II, so usually after major war, the U.S. has retracted back to its peacetime levels of taxes. And uh, and what happened after World War II is that uh, we retained enormous elements of the social welfare state. Sorry, this is coming, bringing in some social uh, uh, or soci sort of fiscal sociology. Uh, and so all of these programs, and these are both New Deal programs from the 30s, but uh, uh, mostly sort of Depression era, uh, it turned out that people generally liked those programs, but they cost something. So the U.S. continued spending uh, on, on this social welfare state. Uh, and so instead of spending 2% uh, uh, of its GDP on uh, tax revenues, those levels remained at 20%. So 20% of uh, revenue was coming from uh, from tax compared to, uh, in peacetime, what would normally be 2%. So, uh, so that, that, but at the same time, uh, so that was sort of the fiscal side of it, but at the same time, uh, the appetite uh, for <clears throat> bearing any cost of war started to erode. And, and the problem with this as an inflection point, this post-World War II, Inflection point is there's so much going on. So n part of this is a nuclear weapons story, is if suddenly the cost of a potential war is millions of people dying, um, suddenly people are much less enthused about engaging in that. And that's something that Reagan said too, is that you can't start a war that no side is going to win because in the, in the ad with the advent of nuclear weapons, no side, if you have 40 million people dying, that you cannot consider yourself a winner from that kind of war. So you have this general er erosion, if you will, of individual appetites for war because now 
you know, individuals, the society knows that these are going to be extremely costly wars in terms of people who die, but also they now don't want to have their taxes go up more. Uh, and this becomes really a bipartisan consensus. Democrats are kind of running away from higher taxes. Republicans run away from higher taxes. Um, and by the same token, neither one wants to, and I think we saw this with, with the recent, uh, a year or so ago, with the uh, political debate about uh, the Affordable Care Act, is even Republicans who campaigned on getting rid of Obamacare come into office and people who indicated that they wanted to repeal it suddenly are, are like, well, actually, I kind of like this program. And so once these programs are in place, they're really hard to take away. And so, but to pay for them, you need high tax, higher taxes. Um, and so it's hard to isolate which of these factors it is and which, if they were present, would lead to these constraints because I think they're part of the same dynamic that had emerged after the Second World War. And do you think the, the sort of treasure argument and the blood argument t together, or which, which one do you think is, is potentially the most mm. influential there? Well, so I, I ran a, uh, a social science experiment, uh, and, w and I was trying to get at this question. And so the way we, we took kind of uh, a, a representative sample of Americans and said, there's this hypothetical war, there's a hypothetical war where we have this war tax, and there's a hypothetical war where uh, X number of people die. Um, how does that affect your support for this hypothetical war? And so a lot of people will say, well, that kind of experiment is meaningless because you can't get people to think about how they would feel about a hypothetical war. But what we did find was that people's attitudes, uh, sort of the decrease in support uh, about the, when you impose the taxes approximated the decrease of support when there were casualties. And so I don't know if that's surprising in some ways it is, because you would think that people might value the sort of uh, people dying more than they do paying more taxes, um, except that, as, as you know, the, the segment of the population that is uh, in an all-volunteer force that will go and actually die in war is quite narrow, whereas a tax is something that everyone will feel. Um, and so those were about the same. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, too, the that talk about the number of people who potentially actually see the physical cost of, of war. Um, we have a non-resident fellow, uh, Dr. Tanisha Fazal, who is doing mm -hmm, research mm -hmm. on uh, casualty aversion and that sort of thing. And one of the things she talked about when I interviewed her on the podcast uh, last year was that our, our medical facilities and medical training have reached the point where you have so few people dying as compared to wounded. Uh, and that just viscerally does not have the same impact on the public as dead mm -hmm, bodies. Mm -hmm. as, you know, wounded just don't have the same impact because the number is not as, as striking and in people's faces. So that's interesting. Um, and, and, and it's totally related to, uh, which is that it's another way in which, again, you know, I, I, and I don't want the normative part of this to be muddled. With, and, and what I want to say is that I'm not advocating that people die in war instead of being wounded. I'm not advocating that we suddenly pay a lot of taxes. But what I am worried about is the, sense, is the idea that these wars are still going on. People are coming back from war missing limbs. They may not be dying, but there are costs. And there, and, and the, but the, the fact that they're not as concrete 
means that these sort of constraints and the, these levers that uh, we would expect to sort of trigger uh, the public pressure to end a war are no longer, as you said, visceral as they were before. And that was actually a good segue into my next question, which is where, what do you see the impact? What are sort of the so what of your research? Is it that we are, because we can send a predator drone and that doesn't seem as viscerally appalling to us to, to kill people in that way or to put American troops in harm's way, does that make us more willing to exercise force? Does it make us more willing to engage in wars all over the world? What are sort of your, your findings? So one of the major uh, findings is that we have these two major wars. Uh, uh, the Afghanistan war has been going on since 2001. Um, and we're sort of in and out of Iraq and Syria uh, and and the Sahel. And I mean, that was, I think, really uh, eye-opening when these four individuals uh, died in Niger. And Senator Graham, Lindsey Graham, who's on the Armed Services Committee, said, oh, I had no idea we had 5,000 soldiers that were based in that region. And so, he, you know, if he doesn't know, uh, it, it's, it, it goes almost without saying that the average person on the street doesn't know. Um, and so I think those things are just far more likely. So, um, and, and so that's, you know, that's a, a slight deviation from the argument because in that case you do have uh, 5,000 people who are based somewhere in that region. And so it's not a case um, like what President, former President Obama said with the Libya war when he was asked about the war powers resolution and whether he needed to get congressional approval. And he said, well, the, uh, since we're using drones and we don't have boots on the ground, uh, we're not required by law to get congressional approval. And so that's more the dynamic that this argument has in mind, which is that you can kind of, as I say, fly below the radar on these conflicts because you can say, well, we're not putting boots on the ground, we're just using drones. Um, and, and we're not, this, this tends not to be part of the, the discussion, uh, but since you don't have to get approval to raise taxes, um, then you don't need to have the public debate about it. And so I think that's sort of the takeaway is that uh, the sort of the, how how we envision kind of a democratic society is that there should be debate about going into war and and expending American uh, blood blood and treasure uh, in the service of national security. And if those debates aren't taking place, then the worry is that you can either get into conflicts that might not be in the national interest or that might continue much longer than the national interest would advise. Sure. Um, so I'm curious, you, you may not have any, any research on this, or, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Obviously that sort of lack of public understanding, that lack of general knowledge about what the military is doing and where they're doing it um, has obvious policy impacts. Uh, theoretically though, it also has an impact on the force itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm curious where, if anywhere, you in your research have sort of seen an impact on the military itself, the fact that people don't understand what they're doing or where they're doing it or how they're being used. So there's been in the, on the Air Force side and maybe to a lesser extent on the Army side with some of its uh, drone UAV operators, a kind of a 
cultural, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but kind of a cultural uh, uh, dissonance or, or divide. Uh, so, for example, um, a member of Congress had suggested that drone operators be eligible for one of these distinguished military medals, and uh, I'm now forgetting who, but had pushed back, and maybe it was um, Hegel. Um, and had said, well, this, they shouldn't be eligible because they're not, they're not at that same level of sort of battle hero. Um, but, and so, uh, you know, and that made a lot of sense, but it also contributes to the, uh, this, the, the morale issue among these drone operators in the Air Force. So the, they're losing, at much higher rates than they're recruiting. So the retention is abysmal, and you can kind of see why, because for a long time, they would take, uh, I think this is less the case now, but they would take, let's say, B-2 pilots that were no longer medically qualified. Uh, let's say they had an injury or their eyesight declined, and they'd repurpose them uh, as predator or reaper of pilots. And uh, that, that, you know, the same kind of person that goes to train and fly a B-2 is not the same person who wants to sit in a trailer in Nevada for 12 hours at a time. Um, and so that's a real, especially if they're not then being rewarded with any kind of service medals. Um, and I still don't think that that conundrum has been solved. Yeah, and, that, and that's kind of in line with, with where I want to go with this question, is the idea that, you know, my first deployment in 2009 you know, people, everyone assumed I was going to Iraq. There was not, people uh -huh. didn't even realize that Afghanistan still existed. Um, and I'm sure the same is true today. Mm -hmm. that, like you said, we, if our politicians don't understand that we have a, a pretty sizable body of troops in the Sahel, nobody else does. So mm -hmm. I, I'm curious what the impact to the individual soldier, to the people who are actually having to go execute these missions in places all over the world, uh, what the impact on their effectiveness is based on the fact that people don't understand what it is that they're doing or where they're doing it or why they're doing it. Yeah, I mean, my, my sense is that on the one hand, uh, that can contribute to real morale problems, uh, uh, you know, not unlike what we were seeing with the, uh, the nuclear missile forces uh, it, just in the sense that this is a slightly different dynamic, but it, you know they had real morale problems because they were based in uh, Montana or Wyoming, and day in and day out they're just sitting there, just making sure that these these nuclear forces sort of their their best day is a day when nothing happens, um, and that that really isn't, and and so that plus all the sort of nuclear disarmament momentum was like wow that what are, what are we here for? Um, but at the same time, I think that really the way we're trained, um, you know, you're trained as a, as a soldier and, and how we were trained as airmen is that you do your job and you, you soldier on. And I think at the end of the day, that's, that's probably the dynamic that wins out in these cases. So I'm going to ask you a, a kind of higher order question and I'm, I'm curious what your response is and, and you may not have a good answer for me. But talking about the, the lack of understanding in, within the public of, of what the military does and, and the lack of visibility that the way that we execute warfare today kind of doesn't lend itself to being visible. Whose responsibility is it to close that 
gap? And is there a way in your mind to mm. bring the conflicts that we're involved in and, and the debate about those conflicts back into focus for the public so that they're able to engage with it in a meaningful way? Or is that, have we, have we crossed the, the Rubicon there where everything is happening in such a nebulous space that it's almost impossible to bring the public back into the debate? It's a great question, and I'm uh, fairly pessimistic on it. Um, and, and so the, during the Iraq war and the, so during both the Iraq surge and the Afghanistan surge, um, members of Congress had, certain members of Congress had advocated for a, a war tax. And it was mostly a symbolic one to try to remind people that we're at war. And it may be that a small segment of the population is actually going to war, but we're, the country is still at war. And that a, a symbolic tax would be a way to remind people of that. And neither, both parties ran away from this, the mainstream. And so uh, it, was the, the, it was interesting because it was the far left and the far right were unified on this because they are unified on the sort of more restraint, foreign policy, libertarian, let's be aware of what we're doing abroad. Uh, but the, the middle swath of both parties was very reluctant to remind the public of this. And I think that the, the, one of the problems with, with uh, I mean, there are a lot of virtues of being a democracy, but one of the, I think, downsides is that these members of Congress just don't want their constituents on their back for more reasons than they have to. And so the more they can keep this off the radar, the better for them. And, uh, and so I think in that sense, this, this sort of this technology uh, and finance of contemporary wars is, is very compatible with their democratic electoral incentives, unfortunately. And so I don't see that changing. I don't think that person, I don't think that the person who advocates, I mean, so there were four individuals who advocated this, including John Murtha, former military himself, Charlie Rangel, former military. Um, and, uh, you know, they get either, they, dis they are unable to run for reelected or they're not reelected. I mean, this is just not a popular uh, strategy uh, in terms of a political pitch. So if they're uh, on the political side, the, the incentives are mismatched to, uh, to bring the public into the debate. Does the military have an obligation to do some kind of outreach to try and close this gap? Or is that a little bit outside of our, our mandate, do you think? Mm, my, I, I'm trying to envision what that would, yeah, what that would look, look like. like. Right. Because again, I think one of the great virtues of the military is that you salute sharply and do what you're asked to do. And so that's not sort of... And, and I think the best uh, individuals in the military are the ones that don't go around screaming about what they've done. <laughs> they just do it without complaining. So I'm not sure what that would look like. I do think it resides more squarely with the members of Congress. Um, you know, people, I'm trying to think, a lot of these, again, a lot of these people are no longer in office. And I think that's no coincidence, unfortunately. All right, Dr. Krebs, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks, I enjoyed the conversation.
Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, remember that if you're not following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It really is a great way to stay up to date on all of the articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. All right, thanks again. Thank you.